0: Here in this chapter, we are right in the middle of the final section of the book, the section characterized by declarations of judgment, calls to repentance, and promises of future restoration. Chapter 13 represents a summary of the charges being brought against Israel. This is what you have done, God says. This is what I will do in response, and this is what I have planned for you beyond. That's the basic order of the chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. As I mentioned, chapter 13 is a summary. The prophet offers a devastating review of Israel's history. He says that you started off strong. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. You were a significant player on the world stage. People in the neighborhood paid attention to you. Then you began worshiping Baal, and you died. Now, this is kind of like how Adam died in the Garden of Eden. As soon as he ate of the forbidden fruit, he died. He died spiritually, he died relationally, and he began to die physically. And actually, that's exactly what happened to Israel. The moment they began to worship Baal, they began to die in every conceivable way as a people. Verse 2. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols, skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. Now, there is some debate over how best to translate verse 2. The NRSV, for example, has it this way. Sacrifice to these, they say. People are kissing calves. The grammar is complicated here. It could be referring to human sacrifice, or it could be referring to humans who sacrifice. We're not sure. What is clear is that Israel is neck deep in gross idolatry, and therefore they will fade away into oblivion and be no more. Like the morning mist or like the dew, they will be burnt up and obliterated by the heat of judgment. Verse 4. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought, But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. Israel is neck deep in idolatry. And why, God asks, are these real gods? Are they your gods? You have known only one God, me. But you have never really known me, and you have never responded to me as you ought to have responded. Daniel Carroll says here, the proper response always and now at this crucial juncture in history should have been gratitude and devotion to the one true God. But provision brought pride and self-reliance. Close quote. That's the tricky thing right there, isn't it? God was really good to Israel. He was generous to them. He fought for them, provided for them. He taught them. He made them noble and strong and instead of being thankful and instead of worshiping him and serving him out of gratitude, they actually became proud, and forgetful, and self-reliant. I remember hearing it said that God's greatest challenge is how to bless incredibly sinful people. Because when you bless sinful people, it often makes them even worse than they were before. They don't know how to respond. They're too broken to respond the way they should. That is the great challenge of the Old Testament, and it isn't satisfactorily addressed until we have the new birth and the gift of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. But we're not there yet in the story. Verse 7, so I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will Tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. Now, even though there are only three specific animals named here in most English translations, there are actually four different animals named in the original Hebrew. Two different Hebrew words are translated as lion in most English versions. But the point is that these are all animals that attack flocks of sheep in ancient Israel. So God is saying, I am no longer your good shepherd. I am now the enemy of the sheep. Things are completely upside down now because of your sin. Verse nine, he destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper, Now, interestingly, but not surprisingly, given the dominant imagery of the book of Hosea, God here uses a word that we remember from the story of Eve's creation. Eve is called Adam's helper, his ezer. That's the word used here. God is the intimate helper of Israel. And yet, Israel has betrayed God and abandoned God and maligned God again and again and again. Therefore... He destroys you, O Israel. Verse 10. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, Give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. This, obviously, is a reference to the people asking for a king like the nations. This goes all the way back to Saul. You never wanted me to rule over you, God says. You always wanted to be like the nations. Fine. Then your punishment is me giving you what you've always wanted. You're on your own now, son. Let me know how that works out. Verse 12. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Here the prophet uses two different metaphors to speak of inevitable judgment. The first one says basically that Israel's punishment is in a sealed jar, or in a sealed scroll, or in a closed can. The matter is set, but God now is about to open the can. The second metaphor talks about a particularly difficult birth. The unwise son was never willing to come out of the birth canal and embrace the life he was destined for. Well, that's Israel, the child who refused to become who he is. Verse 14. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Scholars differ as to how best to translate the first part of verse 14. In fact, Some translations even differ with themselves as to how best to render the first two clauses. I have a 2011 ESV open on my desk beside me, and it puts it this way. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? A lot of modern translations went in that direction. Listen, for example, to the NRSV. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your destruction? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. However, in the most up-to-date version of the ESV, the 2016, they go back to what most of the older translations had. So consider, for example, the old KJV for verse 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. So the issue obviously has to do with whether we're going to render those first two clauses as rhetorical questions that assume a negative answer, or whether we're going to leave them as straightforward statements of promise or intent. Derek Kidner endorses the NIV translation, which renders the verse as a straightforward promise. He puts it this way. Is this a ringing challenge to the last enemy signaling his doom or is it, as some would urge, nothing but the last nail in Israel's coffin? The NIV translation above, which he cites, agreeing with the New Testament, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-four and following, and with the older versions as far back as the pre-Christian LXX, takes it as a great affirmation, one of the greatest in Scripture. That is, it treats the opening couplet of this verse as a straight promise, exactly as it is written, a promise to be unfolded by our Lord's great ransom, saying in Mark 10 45. I believe Derek Kidner is correct here. For one thing, as he himself goes on to say, the Hebrew of 14a does not use the interrogative prefix, but has the form of a plain statement. So the grammar does not incline us to understand these clauses as interrogative, as questions. They are straightforward statements and thus promises. Now, the only reason not to take them as such would be the assumption that they don't fit the surrounding context. This, after all, is a chapter about judgment. This is the climax of the judgment thread in the book of Hosea. So why spoil it, as it were, with a word of hope and promise. And I would argue, because that's who God is. He is always spoiling judgment with a word of promise. That is kind of his thing. And it seems that that is exactly what he is doing once again in this passage. He is saying that I will obliterate Israel. I will punish them most severely. But then... I will ransom them. I will redeem them even from the point of death. And then I will turn and punish death itself. Death and Sheol will be cast into hell and forgotten forever. The New Testament says this very thing in Revelation 20 verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. That idea seems to be reinforced by the middle part of the verse. Look again at Hosea 13, verse 14. After those first two clauses, O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Those lines seem to be saying that death will not have the last word. This devastating blow ordained and delivered by Yahweh will not, in fact, be his final dealing with his covenant people. Hope will have the last word. But then look at the end of the verse where it says, compassion is hidden from my eyes. There God seems to be saying, yet I am resolved to go through this process. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says here, the last line is an important reminder that the hope of national restoration does not eliminate the inevitability of judgment, rather It assures Israel that punishment is neither Yahweh's final dealing with Israel nor the voiding of their covenantal relationship. Closed quote. I think that is exactly right. So God is saying that there will be a devastating punishment, but beyond that, a great work of life and renewal on the other side. The Apostle Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians 15, 54-55. He says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, closed quote. So there, Paul is picking up the pattern from the book of Hosea. He is saying that just like in Hosea, God does not allow death to have the last word. Paul mocks death as a defeated enemy. In Hosea, death didn't get to have the last laugh because God had plans to renew, rebuild, restore, and even enlarge the covenant community on the other side. In the New Testament, death doesn't get to have the last laugh over the believer either because death has been defeated through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God has plans for the believer beyond death. And so once again, death is revealed as impotent, as incapable of obstructing the sovereign will and ordination of God. Praise the Lord. Verse 15. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord, shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up, his spring shall be parched, it shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt, because she has rebelled against her God, they shall fall by the sword, their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open." So in the short term, Israel will be burned up. He will wither, fade, and die. And not quietly, as though in a corner. Not peacefully, as in one's old age. No, Israel's death will be violent. Israel has rejected God. Israel has sent away his protector. So Israel will face reality on his own. And reality in this case has a name, Assyria butchers of the ancient world. They will come and Israel will learn what it's like to live in this world without God. They will die and the whole world will believe it is the end. But the prophet knows and the reader has heard that the Lord has plans beyond the grave. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at Into the Word, I only promote ministries that I have first-hand, on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca.